I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. My guest today is Dr. Justin Coulson. Justin is one of Australia's most respected and popular parenting authors and speakers. He is sought after not only for his expertise in family life, relationships, well-being and resilience, but he's also sought after these days by corporates who are wanting to learn how to do those things a whole lot better in their organisations. He's the founder of Happy Families and he has a PhD in positive psychology. Justin has written five books, is a three-time bestseller, and his next book is about to be released, or by the time this podcast episode has been released, his book, Misconnection, will be out. And he's the father of six daughters, so I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about with all of those things. Thanks, Justin, for joining me today, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Mel. Nice to chat with you. What does connection mean to you? I really like the idea that I think it was Brene Brown that said connection means that we're being heard, seen and valued. If somebody's going to connect with you or you're going to connect with them, the idea is that you're going to not just hear what they're saying, not just see them in front of you, but actually value them both in terms of the content that they're sharing and also the value that you see in them as a person. When we pause and really connect, we're actually essentially acknowledging the humanity in another person. Yeah, I love that Brene Brown quote, and that's actually the beginning of my my next book, because I think that the way that we show up and value people is just so essential today. I love to share this analogy or this metaphor. I'm a cyclist. I love to ride my bicycle. I'm a road cyclist. And when I tell people that, something predictable often happens. There's a, a sitting back in the chair, there's an eye roll, there's a, oh my goodness, he's one of them, is he? When you see a bunch of cyclists on the road up ahead of you, you tend not to think to yourself, oh, look at those guys or those girls, they're so fit and healthy, they're saving our health system, they're not polluting our planet, look at all the good things that they're doing for their well-being. What you normally think when you see a cyclist is, oh, for goodness sakes, get out of my way. You know, what are they doing on the road? Pay your rego, that kind of thing. I mean, it's very rare that you would see a cyclist and think, I wonder how many kids that guy's got. I wonder if he's married. I wonder what he does to contribute to the world other than ride a bike. And what connection really means is that we get past that seeing people as problems. Cyclists are seen by most drivers, by most motorists as a problem. And I think that we approach people in life the same way we approach cyclists on the road. They come to us, whether they're our child or our our spouse or partner or a business colleague or client or subordinate, and they come to us with their challenges or sometimes they're just challenging people and we see ourselves as not quite so challenging they're really the issue so when they do that we treat them like that cyclist on the road we just want to get past them as quickly as we can we want to get past the problem and get on with our otherwise well-ordered life it's not necessarily a great recipe for connection and it's not necessarily a great recipe for building meaningful relationships um, in our lives generally I love that analogy and I never think that of cyclists because I come from a family of road cyclists and the only reason I'm not is because every time I rode my bike on the road, I came within a hair's breadth of getting hit by a car. 
Yeah, because people are trying to get past you, you problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even I found if I was riding, you know, on a footpath or on a bikeway, I'd cop abuse from drivers. And it's like, geez, mm. they just can't take a trick. It's really interesting that you say that as well, though, Mel, because normally when I talk to people in my presentations about that whole cycling thing, there'll always be one or two people who say, actually, no, I don't treat cyclists like that. And when I quiz them as to why, they'll say, well, because I'm one. Mm. Or, or because I have loved ones who ride a bike. It seems that once we have contact with the other, once we have the opportunity to see the world through their eyes, all of a sudden we're seeing them, we're hearing them, we're valuing them, we're perceiving them differently, and therefore we actually give them space, we slow down. Our response or our approach to them is quite different. And wouldn't it be great if we could also have that kind of approach or that response with the people who matter most to us in our lives or the people that we work with and, and encounter every single day? Yeah, I remember a campaign done for, I think it might have been the Electrical Commission a few years ago, and the, the people in the campaign were all talking about why they wanted to go home in one piece. It really resonated with me because it just made me think most of the people who I love work in an office, what would be considered to be a safe working environment, and yet so many people don't, and whether it's road workers or people who work in the mines or people on construction sites or whatever it might be, they go to work and put themselves at risk. And the campaign was all about, I just want to go home in the same way that I went to work with all of my bits attached and nothing broken, nothing injured. And it was just... A campaign it had a lot of success because it really made people realize and think that so many people do work in a risky environment and don't have that opportunity as much as we do yeah i think it's really about again acknowledging the humanity in people last year i was asked to deliver a one day well well initially the brief was we want you to do mental health first aid do a seminar like that and i, I said to the people that asked me it was one of new south wales largest electricity suppliers and I said, what do you really want out of this day? I mean, this is one of those mental health first aid days. There's important information and they're valuable, but they're really a box ticking exercise for many companies. And I said, I can come in and you can tick that box if you want, but tell me what you want most. And they said, well, actually, we've had a, um, we've had a really serious couple of incidents this year. And we've also lost a staff member during an on-site accident. These are the guys that go out when there's a blackout and they have to play with those really big power boxes. And then they're dealing with some pretty significant voltage going through those electrical boxes. And there had been a tragedy. And they said, we, we actually want you to talk to our team about resilience and about well-being and about recovering from something so traumatic. There was some really deep-seated trauma for some of the men on this team. And so it was a large group of men and I'm this white collar guy, you know, I've got a PhD in positive psychology and well-being, and they all think I'm coming in here to tell them how to be happy. That's obviously not what happened on the day. In fact, very much the opposite. We sat down and I listened more than I talked and boy, oh boy, did we connect in profound ways because the day wasn't all about this guy at the front who's the sage on the stage. Instead, there were some gently guided conversations and these men they really opened up and some of them got quite emotional as they reflected on what had been a life-changing experience for them, a, a terrible trauma for them, the loss of a colleague and a friend. And it all happened because, I'm giving myself a pat on the back here, uh, because when I walked into the room, I realised that my job wasn't to deliver content. My job was to work with a group of people to deal with something that had been so traumatic. And that only happened because wise questioning before the event helped mm. me to steer it away from this, this mental health first aid day into a genuinely helpful day for a team that were quite frankly grieving and hurting and fearful. 
Yeah, I've done a lot of work in workplace health and safety as well and was involved in a couple of projects with the construction industry about how to make the workplace safer. And at the time we worked on this project, there was one death a week on the construction side in Australia, which was just ridiculous to me when I first heard that stat. A lot of the work that we did definitely improved safety on sites. But one of the follow-up projects was how do you deal and how do you provide the support to people when they do have an incident that can potentially tear a team apart. And it was just, it was really interesting, the responses that people had and the people on the project team who had been a part of a team where somebody had, you know, had a horrific incident and subsequently died. I think a lot of workplaces don't think about that as much as they often need to. But it's not even having an accident or an injury at work, but it's how do you show empathy when something tragic happens to one of your colleagues, whether it's the death of a child or the death of a parent or a divorce or a miscarriage or a diagnosis of a serious illness. And I've certainly seen in my professional experience that so many people and so many workplaces don't actually know what to do to support a colleague who is going through something that's horrible. Yeah, I think that's a general challenge that we face as humans. People don't really quite know what to say. And unfortunately, as a result of that, they often say things that are well-intentioned, but oftentimes hurtful Mm. or glib or at the very minimum unhelpful. You hear about people who say things, well, I guess the one thing that you don't want to say is, I know how it feels. Unless you actually have been through Mm. it yourself, unless you're standing right there and experiencing it for yourself, you don't really know what it feels like to be that person and to go through what they're going through. My general advice when I encounter this question, and I do get it quite a lot, is you, I love what one of my friends said when he discovered one of his friends had lost his wife. So it's a very personal thing. They were colleagues and they were friends. And after about a week, he realized that he had sent a text message to say, I'm really sorry for your loss, but they hadn't had any real contact. They shook hands and hugged a little bit at the funeral, but there was not much else that had gone on. So after about a week, he sent a text message and said, I wondered if you'd be up for going out and grabbing some lunch. And the friend said, yes, yeah, let's do that. At lunch, my friend said to his bereaved colleague, he looked at me and said, I can't imagine. Mm. I just can't imagine what you feel right now. And I don't know what to do or what to say or how to help, but I just wanted to let you know that I'm here. Yeah. That just opened everything up for this man who was feeling so full of grief. And actually he said, I've got no one to talk to. Nobody understands. And all of a sudden the floodgates opened and they had this wonderful conversation, not because my friend had the answer, but precisely because he didn't have the answer, but was willing to still try to connect in a meaningful way by acknowledging his own vulnerability and ineptitude and incapacity to actually do anything. And just a willingness to listen as well. That's pretty much what it was. I, I, I can't imagine what you're feeling. I don't even know what to say. When my mum died, I had a friend who sent me a text message every week for about nine months saying, I'm thinking of you today. No need to reply. I'm just wanted to let you know I'm thinking of you today. Hmm. And it was Touching. the best thing ever. And I still feel emotional. It's been 10 years and I still feel emotional when I think of that small kindness. And so now whenever I have anybody who's going through a really shit situation, I just send the same text message. Just want you to know I'm thinking of you today. I'm here if you want to talk. Don't feel you have to reply if you don't want to. You know, I've got a brand new book uh, that you've just mentioned. By the time this podcast airs, it will have been released. It's all about parents getting along with their teenage daughters. And it's called Misconnection. While I was writing the book, I came across 
a word that, that I kept on typing. I used this word many, many times. I thought, gee, this is a word that just keeps on appearing in my interviews. It keeps on appearing in my questions, in my surveys. There's something about it. And the word was compassion. The more I wrote the word compassion, the more I was inclined to think there's got to be something here in this word. I went back to um, Google, as we all do nowadays, and looked up what the word compassion actually not what it means, but where it comes from, its etymology. The etymology of the word compassion is this com. Uh, well, com means when we do things with others. So community, communicate, companion, company, uh, C-O-M, oh, combat even. You know, this is something that we do with other people. The C-O-M means that we're, we're doing it with others. And passion, I always thought, well, passion means if you're really passionate about something, that means that you're going to uh, be revved up and excited and, you know, this is my passion project. This is my, the passion of my life. Uh, but when I looked at what passion actually meant when the word was first invented, passion meant literally to suffer, to suffer. And all of a sudden, I thought to myself, this is deep and this is profound. This is, this is perhaps even life-changing because if I have compassion, what I'm actually doing is I'm saying, I'm willing to suffer with you. I'm willing to step into your suffering. I'm willing to feel your pain in my heart. I'm willing to be right beside you as, as you go through this and have that compassion. Now, that is, to me, a profound kind of connection. We started this conversation off talking about connection. I'm not sure that I can think of, the, uh, think of a deeper kind of connection than one that is truly compassionate. When we see somebody in their struggles and their suffering and we say, not just let me stand beside you, but let me stand with you in this. Mm, I love that. One of the things that I'm writing about in my next book is about self-compassion. And so I think whereas we need to obviously be compassionate with others, we need to look at how do we start with ourselves? Because I think that you can't genuinely be compassionate to others if you're not kind and compassionate to yourself first. And you talked about your next books about teenage girls. I think a lot of teenage girls you will know a lot more about this than I will, although I have been a teenage girl and I was certainly a bit of a bitch for a lot of my teenage years. And I wonder whether a part of that was because I wasn't very self-compassionate towards myself. Well, that's certainly possible. I'd say that there's any number of reasons for that. But I think that there's a lot that's been said about self-compassion in the last few years. Kristen Neff is a research psychologist who is very well known in this area, probably the, the biggest name in the area for this kind of thing. And yeah, I think that there's probably something really important in this. We want to be good to ourselves. We want to be kind to ourselves because it's kind of hard for other people to be kind to us when we're constantly beating ourselves up. You might have had that experience as well where you've gone to somebody and you've tried to be helpful, you've tried to be empathic, you've tried to be compassionate, and they've just sat there and said, I'm a failure, I'm no good, I'm the worst person in the world, I'm this, I'm that. And that's fine for a short time. I mean, we all need to beat ourselves up and give ourselves a good uppercut every now and again. We get things wrong. But there comes a time where we need to actually forgive ourselves. We need to acknowledge our humanity and our fallenness, our brokenness, our patheticness, depending on which frame of reference you come from. There's all sorts of ways of looking at that and acknowledge that everybody around us is that as well. That doesn't mean we let ourselves get off scot-free. It means that we say, okay, I've made a mistake and I need to grow. I've been thinking about something a lot lately, just the idea of pain. People tend to be fairly disinclined towards pain. In fact, most people do everything that they can to avoid it, whether it's at work or at home. If something's painful, they try to escape it. 
we try to escape it by picking up our devices and staring at them. That's a great pain management strategy. Some people will use uh, alcohol or other drugs to escape pain. Some people use exercise, any kind of distraction to step out of whatever it is that's causing me pain right now. We quit jobs, we quit relationships, we do all of these things to escape pain. Now, it's true that there is some pain that should be escaped. There is some pain that is not good for our souls or for our growth. But I believe that most pain is actually a wonderful friend and an incredible teacher. It seems to me that growth comes because of pain. If I want to grow my muscles, I need to experience a level of pain and discomfort at the gym. If I want to be a better, riding down hills is not going to make me a stronger cyclist. I've got to ride uphill, you know. <laughs> You've got to learn to love the hills. I've kind of just been talking to my kids a lot about this and talking to my wife about this. Where are we experiencing pain? How can we get more of that pain? What is that pain teaching us? What can we do with that pain to make it constructive and positive? And it's extraordinary. Once you make pain your friend, just how much you can grow and how fast you can grow. And how much you can get done as well. Yeah, that's right, because you don't get distracted. You don't push the pain away by staring at the inside of the fridge or by staring at what's happened on news.com.au. You could read every news article that was published on that favourite news site of yours today. Uh, and I guarantee if I was to ask you what was going on in the world and what news articles you'd read, you'd be doing well to remember more than one or two of them. But we just sort of consume this stuff as a distraction to get away from our pain. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is a little bit about your next book. And it's called Misconnection. And it's about connecting and communicating with teenage girls. As the father of six daughters, how many of them are currently or have been teenagers? My eldest has moved out and married. I've got a 17-year-old, a 16-year-old, and the fourth daughter, she's 12. She's about to be 13, and she lets me know about it constantly. So <laughs> let's just call her that because that'll make her feel good. Yeah, so there's four of them <laughs> who have been or who are. Right. Um, so you're quite well placed to talk about the pain that teenage girls go through. I was a teenage girl, and so I know I was in... Well, I don't know whether I was in a lot of pain as a teenage girl because I don't think you fully realise at the time, but I certainly know there were large pockets of my teenage years that I intensely disliked and I can fully empathise with all of my nieces and friends' daughters who are teenagers now and the angst and the, the frustration and everything that you go through at that age and I don't seem to have noticed the same degrees of angst and frustration with the teenage boys who've been in my life. What do you think makes teenage girls so much more challenging than teenage boys? Yeah, so this is really curious to me. And when you look at the data, our teenage girls generally are actually doing extremely well. Over the last couple of decades, teenage girls have really surged in terms of their, their life decisions and their outcomes. If you look at the way teenage girls are doing, they're topping their classes, they're doing better at school, they tend to be better in their relationships. They're usually more mature than the boys. Across the spectrum, they're doing very, very well. But they are, in some ways more challenging the boys. In other ways, the boys are far more challenging. And this is something that I've discovered as I've been doing all of this research. And in fact, now that the Teenage Girl book is out, I've, I've refused and refused and refused to write a Teenage Boy book, but I've actually just said, okay, I'll do it because Excellent. there is such a need. And the reason for that is boys are struggling with what manhood is and masculinity. And masculinity is being called into question more than ever now. We've got a U-shaped curve when it comes to boys, or men, I should say. Men are overrepresented at the very top of the tree when it comes to adulthood. Let's look at corporate life, for example, or politics, or pick your public domain. Wherever men are, they're overrepresented at the top of the tree, but they're also hugely overrepresented at the bottom as well. Women don't seem to be able to get quite to the top 
as often as men. That's a long-standing issue. But boy, oh boy, it's very rare that you see the quantities of women as a percentage declining and lowering themselves to the places that so many men end up being as well. So we've got a real masculine problem. Anyway, back to your question. Why are girls so much trickier in some ways? I think it really comes down to just a handful of things. And the primary one is actually relational. It's connection. Girls are biologically shown to be more relationally oriented. They're more likely to use relational aggression when things aren't going quite right. Boys are more likely to whack each other, you know, give him a punch, get over it. Now, it's stereotypical. I know boys are much more physical. Girls are more relational. And while there's a great amount of within gender variability, there is a clear and distinct difference in the average Girls are simply more relational. That means that if a girl gets up, uh, gets upset about something, number one, it's probably going to be relational in the first place. But number two, she's probably going to say something or do something in terms of ostracizing or turning friends against them, you know, gossiping, any of those kinds of things, spreading rumors, setting up a false page online. And it's typically going to be relational. And she's also going to ruminate both the perceived aggrieved and the perceived aggressor they're going to be much more likely to ruminate, go over to their bedroom, stew on things, talk to their friends about it. That's just kind of a, again, stereotypical, but on average, much more likely to be done by girls than boys. The other thing is that on average, boys do tend to be a bit more active. They tend to be more likely to be outside and visible. Girls often just retire to their rooms. They're quiet. They're just not around so much. And anyone who's had a teenage girl knows that they're pretty hard to track down until you walk into their room and see them staring at their phone laying on their bed or immersed in a book or doing an art project or a craft project. So I think that those kinds of things are, are quite challenging. Beyond that, teenagers generally, I mean, they just want to, they want to do the next bit on their own. They're so eager to inhale adulthood. They just want to be able to be independent and separate from their parents and live their own lives. And they think that they're ready for it somewhere around two or three years earlier than they really are. Parents, of course, think that they're not ready for it for at least two or three years after they are. So <laughs> there's a little bit of a mismatch in expectations and, and desires there. I remember growing up, I grew up on the Central Coast in Gosford, and there was a huge rock concert I think it was in 1983 at Narara. It was called Narara 83 with Eurythmics as the headliner, who I loved. And I had the biggest meltdown because my mother wouldn't let me go. I was 13. Not surprising she wouldn't let me go. But my cousin, who was 16, was allowed to go. <laughs> and now I think, God, I wouldn't let my kid go at that age either. Or probably even 23, I'd raise an eyebrow. So no wonder. But at the time, I just remember thinking, that's so unfair. But what you've just said about wanting to be an adult a few years earlier than you were ready, I definitely can see that in myself and in many other teenage girls. <laughs> we must have grown up around the corner from one another. I grew up on the New South Wales Central Coast and Narara is right next door to Niagara Park. Yes, and it is. I went to Niagara Park Public School. Wow. Just, yeah, but, but you've got a couple of years on me, so I don't yeah. remember Narara 83, but you might remember... In around about, I'd say, 1986, 87, John Farnham performed at Adcock Park. I could hear it from my bedroom. I do. Because I lived on Albany Street and Adcock Park was across the water. Across from, the water? Yeah. Oh, so you'd stepped up from Narara to Point Frederick. I lived in, I grew up in Point Frederick. So, oh, like, oh yeah, very but, nice. Yeah, very nice. It was. <laughs> crappiest house on a great street. 
<laughs> I used to drive up and down Albany Street and look at the houses and think, yeah. one day I hope I'm wealthy enough to live in Albany Street. Well, uh, there were some amazing houses there down the other end of the street where we're up <laughs> yeah. the Duke Street end. <laughs> at that John Farnham concert, I was there with my parents because I was only about 12 or 13 or something like that. And there was a couple, I guess they were in their late teens or early 20s, laying on the ground about 15 metres away from us on this great big athletics oval. And we were sort of three quarters of the way back. The crowd was pretty mm. spread out where we were. And there was this couple and they just laid beside each other with their mouths connected for the <laughs> entire concert. This is my entire memory of the John Farnham concert. These, this, <laughs> this couple having this two and a half hour makeout session on the grass at Adcock Park while John Farnham sang Touch of Paradise and pressed down. <laughs> You're the voice. <laughs> David Hirschfelder on the keyboards. It was great. That tour was for the Whispering Jack album, I remember. And I would have loved to have gone, but not really into crowds. Your mum wouldn't let you. No, I wouldn't have even said, asked. No, still not old enough. No, I wouldn't I'm have going. even asked for that one. I was well, <laughs> 15 or 17 then, but no, possibly that was just after I got busted at the Leagues Club. Oh. lips with my 19-year-old boyfriend, my dad. Oh, Mel, Mel. <laughs> were, were you in Club Troppo? No, oh, I never thank went to No, no. Okay. Anyway, we might just chase it. <laughs> <laughs> so have you got a couple of tips for parents of tween or teenage girls to help them build a stronger relationship with them? Yeah, yeah, for sure. These aren't just for parents of teenage girls. These are tips for anyone in any relationship. If you are a human and you are in a relationship, I think that these ideas that I share with you will be helpful. The first one is... Actually, I'll tell you what I used to say and how I've tweaked it recently. I used to say that just like dollars are the currency of our economy, attention is the currency of our relationship. Ooh, I like that. But I've shifted it just a bit. I've changed it to say just like dollars are the currency of our economy, connection is the currency of our relationship. Because we can have negative attention. I mean, I guess that's a kind of a currency as well. But if I want my relationship to be strong, it's about connection. And so when I talk to people, whether I'm talking to couples, whether I'm in an organization or whether I'm talking to parents, let's pick the couple context in this instance because this is the fun one. When you leave home in the morning, assuming that you're in a partnered relationship or whoever leaves the home first, you or your partner, what's your goodbye like? So I'm normally asleep because Sean works shift work. And so when he leaves, well, so he this morning he left home at quarter to five because he had to be at work by half past five. And so he says, <laughs> he just said goodbye and gave me a kiss, which I know he usually does. Couldn't tell you this morning because I was apparently on my back and snoring. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one thing that we always do is we you know, say goodbye and give each other a kiss. Even if I'm just walking to the shops to buy some milk mm. for five minutes, neither of us would ever dream of leaving the house without saying goodbye and giving the other one a kiss. Yeah. And, you know, so many couples don't do that, Mel. So many couples are like, mm. see, I'm going, or they just walk out the door. I think that the quality of our comings and goings is so important. I've watched parents with their kids and, you know, every now and again, I'll be at school drop off saying goodbye to my children. And when I say this, by the way, there's no there's no judgment. I'm not giving anyone a hard time because I've been that parent myself. But, you know, there's that moment where you, you're saying to the kids, that's it. I've had it. Don't ever do this again. If you cannot find your shoes tomorrow morning, if you can't find your lunchbox, if you can't find your school bag, if you can't find your school jumper, if you can't find your hairbrush, if you come back home with head lice again today, well, you're, just, <laughs> just, just, don't, you're destroying my life. Now get out of the car. 
have a good day, kids. <laughs> <laughs> What's the quality of our comings and goings? Are we, are we mindful? Are we really connecting? Are we gentle with each other? Are we compassionate? When we've got a child or a partner who's having a hard time or even a work colleague, do we recognise that when people are having a hard time or when people are being challenging, it's because they're feeling challenged and they don't need us to berate them. They don't need us. I've got to actually, I want to look this up here. Now, this was a quote that was shared with me by somebody in a church context. It doesn't have any religious connotation at all. It's just part of a, a church talk. It has been so impactful in the way I see people who are having a hard time. It's by a, a, a guy by the name of Jeffrey R. Holland. Jeffrey R. Holland says this, when a battered, weary swimmer tries valiantly to get back to shore after having fought strong winds and rough waves, which he should never have challenged in the first place, those of us who might have had better judgment or perhaps just better luck ought not to row out to his side, beat him with our oars and shove his head back underwater. That's not what boats were made for, but some of us do that to each other. Mm, that's very profound don't you just love that we actually we see somebody challenging or challenged and we say oh yeah it's their fault the silly fool the this the that we get cranky at them we actually give them more of what's challenging them in the first place or we give them our attitude or we give them our back we refuse to listen we we might say to a child who's struggling that's it if you're going to speak like that i'm not going to listen and this poor child doesn't know how to regulate his or her emotions this poor child is feeling so overwhelmed or so I mean, our kids will do the best that they can so long as they know what to do, but quite often they don't know what to do because they're so emotional. And I don't know about you, Mel, but as an adult, perhaps you've had moments like that where you know you should be better than you're being right now, but you're just so overwhelmed with emotion or tiredness and fatigue or stress or whatever it is, and you're saying to Sean things that you really don't believe. Mm. But in the moment, my goodness, you believe them. You're seeing it the way it really is when you're all emotional and then your emotions go away and you're like, oh, I can't believe I said that. It seems so right in the moment. And if Sean is like any normal human, there will be times where he'll just give it back as good as he's getting. He'll get in that boat and row out and say, this is your fault, Mel. But if Sean is doing well that day and if Sean is being patient and compassionate and wanting to connect with you, he's going to walk over to you and he'll put his arms around you and he'll say, today has been so hard. Why don't we just hug for a bit? Mm. And my sense is that you're probably not going to push me away and say, what would you know? You're probably going to (laughs) fall into his shoulder and sob and say, it's been so awful. And all of a sudden, everything changes because of that beautiful connection, because of that compassion, because he knows that just like dollars are the currency of our economy, connection is the currency of our relationship. And he wants your relationship to be rich. Mm. I love that analogy. I'm going to use that. You can steal it. It's mine, but you can have it as well. I will attribute it to you, I promise. So much of what we've spoken about, I think, comes back to listening and paying attention. Oh, I was going to say, how do you think we can encourage our teenagers to be better listeners? But how do we encourage other parents to be better listeners? And how do we get our kids to listen? We have a joke in our family. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. (laughs) Interrupting cow. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and so... we went really well, by the way. Thank you. In a family, as you can imagine, of six daughters, there is a lot of interrupting. And so whenever there's anyone who interrupts in our home, we just look at that interrupter and say, interrupting cow. 
which could sound really bad if you didn't have the context because we're not actually calling our daughters cows. But I think we heard the joke on the Vicar of Dibley. That, that was a joke right at the end of it one night. It always stuck with us. And so we, had, we say to our kids, interrupting cow every time they interrupt. And, and we try to do that. But I think I'm reminded of a, a story that Stephen Covey, the late Stephen Covey, who was the author of the magnificently profound Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey talks about in that book how after a seminar, a man came up to him and the seminar was all about understanding. It was about this very topic that we're discussing. The man came up to him and said, Stephen, I really enjoyed the seminar today and I agree with every word, but I have a question for you. I can't understand my teenage son. He won't listen to me. To which Covey replied, let me restate what I just heard you say. I want to make sure that I listened and heard you correctly. You can't understand your teenage son because he won't listen to you. To which the man replied, yeah, that's exactly right. Covey said, okay, let me say that again. And I want you to listen closely. You can't understand your teenage son because he won't listen to you. The man looked at him perplexed and said, yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> to which Stephen replied, well, I always thought that if you wanted to understand somebody, you need to listen to them. Simple story. But again, so, so impactful. If we want to help other people to listen well, I think we need to be good listeners. We yeah. need to let other people say what they need to say. And I'm terrible at this because I'm one of those people, Mel. I'm probably revealing far too much about my character here. I'm one of those people who truly, honestly believes that everything that I'm going to say is going to be brilliant. I'm paid to give talks, right? I'm paid to say brilliant things. And, and sometimes I forget the dining table or the, you know, the, the, underneath the gazebo while we're camping with friends. Sometimes I forget that those aren't the stage where I'm giving this keynote. They're not the training room. Instead, I'm just with family and friends. And sometimes I think that it's my job to do all the talking. And what I've found for me is that whenever somebody says something and I'm about to either interrupt, interrupting cow, or I'm about to um, just dive in because they've finished, I count to at least three slowly just to see if they've got any more to add. Or I just look at them and smile or look around the group to see if anyone else has anything else to add because yeah, I've always got something to say. And I think it can probably get a bit tiresome for other people. I don't get sick of me. None of us get sick of ourselves but some people might every now and again get sick of us. I think it's just good practice to pause. I do say to my, when I'm in, um, as I just butted in without pausing, I do say to when I'm doing a workshop, this is not about me talking, you need to talk, because I do get sick of the sound of my voice, which I must admit is a bit of a lie, but it's a good way to get, it's a good way <laughs> to get them to talk. But I think that's so important. And I was at lunch yesterday with Sean and with a bunch of his friends or friends of both of ours and there was one particular person there who just talked the entire time and who talked at people and she'd ask a question give you three seconds to respond and if you hadn't responded quickly enough or in a way that satisfied her willingness to listen then she would just interrupt and then continue and I just found it really boring but also really frustrating because she just had zero interest in getting to know anyone else and I sometimes think that it's very easy to become so self-absorbed in all of our own shit, forgetting that other people have things that they need to contribute or want to contribute. I'll tell you what I heard just then. I heard you say that you never connected with this woman. There was no connection. There was no connection yesterday. I've known her for a while and so we've connected in the past, but yesterday she was all talk, 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 talk. 
I'm just going to pause now. You can, you can. <laughs> Let me give you another key, another really helpful thing that we can use for our relationships because you asked for a few things. If we really want to have strong connections, whether it's at work or at home with children or with adults, not only do we need to make sure that we're really creating connection, we need to be you know, attentive to the relationship, mindful about the relationship. I think that we need to have appropriate boundaries in our relationships. Mm. We need to make sure that people know where the line is and that lines aren't crossed too often. We need to have that level of self-respect. And the third thing is that we need to laugh. We need to have joy in our relationships. I look at workplaces and families and I think, my goodness, we're all so serious about life all the time. We're all so busy. We're so caught up in our own agendas. Can we just have some fun every now and again? Can we just laugh a little bit? First time I met my mother-in-law, she said to me, at the end of a weekend together, she said to me, are you and Sean always like this? And I said, what do you mean? Thinking, what did you want about? She said, are you always like this? And I said, in what way? She said, are you always laughing at each other and having such a great time together? And I said, yeah, we do. And once that stops, then what's the point? If you can't laugh and enjoy a lot of laughs, often at your own expense, sometimes at their expense, sometimes just at what's happening around you together, then why would you want to spend that much time with the person? Yeah, well, I wouldn't be too judgy about that because some people are more serious, some people are a little bit more introverted and reserved, but we want to find joy in our relationships, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And some people find that joy through laughter, some people find it through intellectual stimulation, some people find it through an emotional connection. But I think that what you and Sean have found there that you've described is a delight genuine delight. Laughter is just so important, I think, to every aspect of life, as are the other things that you mentioned. But if we don't find laughter, I just sometimes wonder what the purpose of life is if you have a life without laughter. I've got a question for you. Actually, it's more of a story. Okay. I was quite upset this morning. One of my girls came into my bedroom and said, can I have a bookmark? She's 16 years old and she still doesn't know my name's Justin. What would you do if she called you Justin instead <laughs> I'd of dad? My, I'd say dad. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't emphasize laughter or joy, joy enough. I remember many years ago, I went for a bike ride with a friend of mine. It was one of those hot, humid days. It was about 36 degrees when we got back to my house. He'd driven his car to my house and the ride was over. We'd ridden like 120 Ks. It had been a big day. And he said, what are you doing now? I said, I'm going to go for a swim. Do you want to join me? He said, you bet. Went into the backyard. My children were already in the pool. You know how children... They just don't feel the cold. I dipped my toe in the water and I thought, it feels like someone's tipped ice buckets in there. I don't, I don't care if it's 36 <laughs> degrees and humid and, and I'm sweaty. That water feels like it, it has come from Antarctica. It was awful. I turned around to say to my friend Dave, who was a 42-year-old bachelor, no kids, no partner, not used to all of the noise that all my kids were making in the pool. I turned around to say to him, oh, Dave, it's a bit cold. I'm not sure if I'm going to get in. And as I did, I felt this pain in the small of my back. I was like, oh, I turned around. One of the kids had the super soaker and she'd, <laughs> she'd, she'd sprayed the small of my back as I turned around to Dave and got me an absolute beauty. And it was like ice. I mean, it was painful cold. I don't know how those kids were in the water that day. So Dave just cracked up as I'm in pain. And I've turned around to say something to my daughter and remembered that I'm supposed to be this parenting and family and relationships expert. And so I'm trying to think of what I can say that's appropriate and polite when I'm just more and as I'm trying to find my words, I looked at this devilish smile appear on her face as she lifted the super soaker out of the water again <laughs> and aimed it at Dave's chest. 
the water comes out of the super soaker. It's flying across the pool. I'm thinking I'm going to have to do one of those, you know, dive in front of the bullet, take one for the team, all the president's men kind of thing. And um, the water had already gone past. So it was too late for that. It hit Dave right in the chest. And I thought, oh, no, he's going to say a bad word. He's going to say one of those words that we don't say at our house and the kids are going to hear it. It's going to be a catastrophe. And instead, what he did was with his hands, he clutched his chest like, oh, and then he pretended to die as he fell headfirst into the pool. <laughs> and all of my children swam over to him and they climbed onto his shoulders and they tried to drown the guy and they asked him to throw him and do somersaults and this and that. And I'm standing on the end of the pool going, and I'm the parenting expert here. I realized in that moment, I'd forgot what it was to connect and to laugh and to have fun with my family. And here was the guy with no kids showing me how to do that again. I thought, what a, what a profoundly important lesson. Maybe we could just be a little more light about our relationships. Our relationships are important. I'm not suggesting that we should take them lightly, but rather I'm suggesting that we could be light in them. Or maybe we could even be a light to others in mm. our relationships. We can only do that if we're willing to connect, if we're willing to be clear about what's okay and what's not, and if we're willing to find joy in the relationship at whatever level is appropriate for that relationship. I love that story. And I sometimes think that when you're not as deeply entrenched in the family, it's often easier to have those moments of lightness. And I certainly know as a favourite auntie, I definitely have those moments of lightness with teenage girls who have fewer of them compared to the number of times they spend together with their parents. And I think it's because they are there together all the time. Yeah, it just highlights the importance of community, not just for our Absolutely teenage girls, not, not just for, for everybody. our kids, but for everybody. You know, we, we don't live today the way we lived tens of thousands of years in these small communities where everybody knew everyone and everyone helped out and everyone contributed to the greater good. That's not how we live today. And frankly, as ultra-social beings, I think, and the research certainly would support the idea, we're not doing good for ourselves and I think we've both highlighted that by saying that we both grew up in the same place on the Central Coast, which is a 1,000 kilometres away from where we both live now. Now, I left when I was 17 and I, I have a few friends that I had from when I was a young child who I still see sporadically. And the relationships that I have with those friends are so much deeper and closer than relationships I have with people I've known for even 10 years who I see far more frequently. And I think that sense of that loss of community for so many people is quite sad and it takes a lot more effort to stay in touch with people who you, once you leave somewhere, and most people leave the place they grew up in these days. Yeah, intention is the answer. Just like dollars are the currency of our economy, connection is the currency of our relationships. Kylie and I, with six kids, with me travelling all the time for work and we live quite active social lives we have had to be really intentional every week every quarter we sit down and work out who are the friends that we're going to be inviting around who are the friends that we're going to be going out and having meals with who are the friends that we're going to be catching up with for our children uh, who are we going camping with who are we doing you know we've got to be absolutely intentional about it and plan it not that i'm saying that there's no room for spontaneity we do plenty of that as well but what we have found is that in most of the relationships that we share with those outside of our family we tend to be the instigators of those get-togethers. And every now and again, Kylie might complain about that. And my response is, would you like to have friends or not? 
<laughs> because if you want to have friends, sometimes you've just got to be the instigator. Those friends are great friends. We've actually just got to remind them to come and be friendly with us because they've also got busy lives and they're running businesses and they're working long hours and they're this and they're, they're that. And as soon as they get that invitation, there's an instant yes. They're like, yes, I'm in. But if we don't set the intention, if we're not mindful about it, if we're not willing to create the connection and let those people know that even though they're busy, we're still seeing them, hearing them and valuing them and we want them in our lives, then those connections do disappear, whether they're 40 years old or whether they're 40 days old. Yeah, absolutely agree. Intention is such a big concept that improves and impacts on your life in such a positive way when you think about it and put tactics, practical tactics into place. Well, we're almost at the end of our time. My last couple of questions, I ask this of all of my guests, is there a particular book or a podcast that's really impacted you? Sure. Let me give you maybe top five. I have a faith background. And so I have to say that the holy books that I hold dear in my Christian faith have to be at the top of that list. I know some people are going to roll their eyes and say, oh, you know, religion, blah, blah, blah. But the wisdom that has survived these thousands of years is there because it's wise. And I think that there's just tremendously impactful, powerful things. Aside from that, if we're talking about our typical secular or empirical or scholarly kind of work, or even just pop psych, for example, when I was about 21, I read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I still refer to that book perhaps more than any other book. There's so much good stuff in there. It's probably dated a bit now. It's 30-odd years old, but my goodness, it's a good book. I've been reading it again this week and it hasn't dated at all. Is that right? The first time I read it was probably 25 years ago and it stayed with me as well. Many of those seven habits have been firmly entrenched in my world ever since I first read it. Yep, just such an earth-changing book. Yep. Life-changing, just, just amazing. The next one that I would mention is The Happiness Hypothesis. Happiness Hypothesis is by a guy called Jonathan Haidt. I think he's one of the world's greatest thinkers, certainly from a psychological perspective. And if you want to know anything about well-being and the way the human psych, psych, psyche works, this guy is just extraordinary. This year, uh, sorry, in 2019, he wrote The Coddling of the American Mind with a colleague, Greg Lukianoff, which is also very good. But The Happiness Hypothesis, I think, is his greatest work. Absolutely excellent. My book of the year for 2019 was a book called Dark Horse, Achieving Success Through the Pursuit of Fulfillment. It's by Todd Rose. He's a a member of Harvard faculty in the Graduate School of Education there. And this is a book that's kind of about how we can, we don't have to follow the standardization covenant that the rest of our society has embraced. That is, you know, school is standardized and work is standardized and university is standardized and we've uh, you know, got to get onto the conveyor belt and just be better than everybody else and you'll be successful in life. And what he's arguing is that we've standardized success and we know how to get success, but success is very different to fulfillment. And so he shares science and incredible stories about the path to fulfillment, which very often brings success, but usually a very different kind of success to the kind of success that we're used to talking about. So that one's really been exciting for me in the last few months. That was definitely my book of 2019. Three is probably enough. I said five, but we'll go with three. For listeners, I'll pop links to all of those in the show notes so you can check them out if you're interested. Oh, and podcasts. I listen to podcasts all the time. I just can't get enough of podcasts. One of my favorites, very, very easy to listen to, is called The Happiness Lab. The Happiness Lab is done by Pushkin, which is the Malcolm Gladwell company. And um, The Happiness Lab is just great. Absolutely love it. I think that it's really simple, positive psychology. It helps people to understand exactly what's going on there. Uh, I very rarely miss an episode of the Art of Manliness podcast. Really enjoyed that. And Hidden Brain, 
uh, from NPR. Really enjoyed that as well. Oh, by the way, I will mention two other books really quickly because I can't help myself. I didn't mention any relationships <laughs> books. John Gottman wrote a book called Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. If you're in a relationship, in a, in a marriage, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, I think is, or in a partner relationship, I think is absolutely extraordinary probably the best marriage book i've ever read it's really simple totally accessible but life-changing absolutely brilliant and i've written a couple of pretty tidy books as well you have what are you reading now what i'm reading right now is a church book i'm reading a book that's called the jesus wars it's by a theologian and historian by the name of philip jenkins and most christians knew the history of christianity looking at alexandria and antioch and constantinople and these places that were really the center of the world back in about 300 400 500 600 ad this is just extraordinary it's a ripping read anyone who's interested at all in the history of christianity even if you're not interested in christianity in, in just in the history of the world this is just a fabulous book the jesus wars as a very lapsed catholic i may have to read that one thank you sure thing <laughs> We'll add religion. When I was at school, I went to St. Joey's in East Gosford, which you would be familiar with. And the class I was sent to the headmistress's office for the most was religion. Oh, Mel. <laughs> because I questioned. I'm a questioner. Mm. And so I questioned everything. And my poor religious teachers would just have enough and just go get out. I think that's really unfortunate because... There are answers. It's just my experience with most people of any religious faith is that they're not particularly well-versed in the deeper doctrines, the highest and most profound truths. We get so caught up in all of these tiny little insignificant things and start getting judgy and preachy and yeah. it's disappointing. And when you can't answer a teenager's legitimate questions, and I'm assuming they were legitimate, Mel. Oh, they were legitimate. I struggled to believe because I'm very science-based and I like to see hard evidence. And being told, like, the answer I was most frequently given was because it's what we tell you to believe. Mm. Or, and it's like, well, that's not really very helpful. It's, it's so unsatisfactory at every level. Very unsatisfactory, very. Anyway, where can people find you if they'd like more information about you and where can people buy your books? So my books are available everywhere. Online is the easiest place. Every now and again, you'll get them on special places like Amazon or booktopia.com.au. They're on my website at full retail because, golly, a guy's got to feed his kids now and then. Absolutely. So the website is Happy Families dot com dot au i'd love to do a little giveaway if i can mel oh, i'd love you to yeah thanks. i just need to make sure that i've got the link right so i'm going to say it and hopefully i've got the link right it's happyfamilies.com.au slash kickstart three weeks three easy ways to make positive changes in your family starting right now normally i sell it for 97 bucks i'm giving it to you and your listeners if they have families and they want to know more it's free, normally 100 bucks. You can have it for nothing. Happyfamilies.com.au slash kickstart. I've got a Facebook page where there's like 120,000 people that follow me. It's Dr. Justin Coulson's Happy Families. I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram, I'm on all the socials. You can find me anywhere. Just type my name in and away you go. And I'll pop all the links into the show notes just in case you can't find it. That's great. Thanks, Mel. Thank you so much. I loved this conversation. Hopefully, listeners, you will as well. But I just think we talked about so many really interesting things and you gave so much great practical advice for people, um, for parents and for others who have teenage girls and teenage boys in their worlds. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mel. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn, or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.